Well, I'm very sorry to bring you into the chapel at this time. You're more likely to fall asleep than I am because you're sitting down. But I will try to keep short my conference, and then we have benediction and the retreat ends. It's been a retreat very different for me, at any rate, from any other I've ever given. And I'm still uncertain whether I was fair to you all by giving talks on Maryland, where normally in a retreat you deal with things like sin and prayer and God. But I have been encouraged that some of you already feel that you go away with a challenge, at least in this way, that we are the inheritors of a very wonderful past. And as we are ending our talk and our retreat, it's nice to think that when you come to the bicentennial and you rejoice that you got rid of King George III and his merry men, that nevertheless, for myself as an Englishman, I don't feel any particular bitterness. Indeed, I think we feel very proud of what was achieved. I don't quite know what good or bad things we gave you. We gave you your law, which I think is stood up to the test, and we gave you a language which you've made a hell of a mess of, if I may say so. <laughs> I'm rather hoping we gave you scotch, but I'm not too sure whether it was invented in John Carroll's day. But whatever else we gave you, slavery and all manner of other things like the Beatles, um, we did eventually give you one marvelous thing, and that was the Catholic Church in Maryland. And when we've been going through the history and thinking of all those heroic people, Marylanders and British, starting right back with Thomas More and coming down to Campion and to those wonderful martyrs in Britain and the persecuted Catholics there who saw no result for their life of suffering, when we take Father White and we take that poor old emperor who changed his name to Charlie, and when we think of that father mostly riding around all day on a horse, or whether you think of the little school in Bohemia Manor, you suddenly realize very few of those people saw any result for all their suffering for the faith. But our Lord kept on constantly saying in the gospel that what one person sows, another reaps. And therefore, in a sense, for the Catholics of my country and the Jesuits, Maryland really is the result. And really it came to blossom with John Carroll himself. All the hard work of all the others found a very worthy man two or three hundred years later. And so we could almost say that the whole of the Reformation period and all the persecution in England and Maryland all ended up in Baltimore. Now John Carroll was an extraordinary person because he was so level-headed. And we saw him being made bishop and the way in which he approached his task. Now, he began with practically half the eastern seaboard in his diocese. And he had many troubles, oddly enough, some of the first with his own colleagues who had been Jesuits, because he was determined to keep the land that was given by the Indians and by early settlers. He was determined that that should be kept intact for the American church, and he succeeded. Then he had a very sad business with his own cousin, Father Charles Wharton, a Maryland man, who also went to St. Omer's and spent 20 years there as a boy and as a Jesuit, and who became professor in the seminary at Liège. When the society was suppressed and all the Maryland people went home, 
Charles Wharton went to the English city of Worcester, which you call Worcester, from which the source comes, and there he was the Roman Catholic chaplain for two years. He then decided to be an Episcopalian and packed up his faith. And not only did he pack it up, but he wrote a letter to the people of Worcester in England saying why he had abandoned the Catholic Church. And he published it widely in, here in Maryland to the embarrassment of John Carroll, who was his cousin. And it got all around Maryland just at the critical moment after the Independence War where a Jesuit publicly said that the church was wrong. Carroll answered him, and then, typical of that time and of the dignity of Carroll, he went and met Wharton in Philadelphia, and they had dinner together. And Wharton never changed, but Wharton did some very noble things. First of all, the money he had given to the society when he took his vow of poverty, he wouldn't take back. Although he had become an Episcopalian, he felt that what he gave away to the society on his vows must stay with the Jesuits. And secondly, though he criticized the church and spoke very bitterly about Roman Catholicism in many ways, he always defended the Jesuits. When they were suppressed, and nobody had a good word for them here, this apostate Jesuit always defended them for what they'd done for him at St. Omer's. He married twice. He was a vicar in the Episcopalian Church in New Jersey and Delaware. He was eventually elected president of Columbia University in New York. Rather an odd setup to have a lapsed Jesuit in charge of a, a Protestant university. But he was too ill to do more than be there for the commencement. He was the third president, and then he retired. He outlived Carroll, and when Carroll died, people wrote to him saying how he had broken the archbishop's heart. He died without ever repenting, but he had in, on his bed when he was an old man dying the prayer book that he had as a boy at St. Omer's, given to him by one of the masters he liked very much. And he died singing one or two hymns which he had sung in the college when he was a boy. I don't know whether he was entirely, uh, as the Irish say, with us at that time. But at any rate, he did die singing Catholic hymns and, in a way, behaved very well. So when we hear scandals today, it's well to remember that this was a common thing in America just after the Independence War. Now, John Carroll, having had trouble with the Jesuits, he then had the most immense trouble, as you can imagine, with people pouring into America from outside. See, nobody in Europe really knew anything about the States because it had been a British colony. And therefore, the French, who were enemies of Britain, never got there, and only a few Germans knew what happened. But the moment the British were defeated and withdrew, immediately all sorts of people raced here rather with the idea of getting free land and settling in on their own. The most pestiferous at the start were the French. Because of Lafayette having fought on your side, the French seemed to think that they owned America. We'd pinch Canada from them and they would pinch Maryland from us. And, and John Carroll helped the thing along a bit because he was desperately needing priests and he invited the Sulpicians to come to Baltimore to open the first seminary. They were marvelous men. But then all sorts of French bishops and French orders turned up and they started this terrible Ohio scheme which practically bankrupted half the Catholics in, in this part of the world and the French became a menace. And it's to the credit of John Carroll, though he was never anti any nation, 
and loved all nations, nevertheless he was determined that the American church must be American. What a debt you owe to him for that. The whole of America could have been occupied by people dissatisfied with Europe. So he sent the French flying for a time, and then he had more troubles, of course, as you can guess, with another turbulent race, the Irish. Because the first thing that happened was that the priests who didn't get on in Ireland mainly, and whose bishops didn't like them, came here. Some brilliant men came, but there were one or two troublemakers. There was one man in particular who went to Rome and ran Archbishop Carroll in for being discourteous and who tried to cut out a whole slice for himself in some diocese. And John Carroll was firm enough to send them all packing. One of the most disreputable, sadly enough, is buried near, very near Mother Seton in the parish church at Emmitsburg. Then he had immense troubles uh, with the Irish because you can imagine the difficulties that up to that time uh, the English calendar of feasts was kept in Maryland. And the Irish said, not on your life, we're not going to say masses to all these English saints. So they suddenly found the whole missile went wrong. They weren't going to say the Mass of St. Bede or St. George or anything. But then the Germans turned up, and even they are a bit difficult at times. And in Philadelphia, there was almost a civil war when the Germans built a great church next door to St. Joseph's and settled down to form a German community. It could have happened so easily in the States that the ethnic groups took over the Catholic Church because the original church in Maryland was so small. When you think John Carroll started with only about 29 priests, you can imagine if 700 priests suddenly blow in that the archbishop had very good chance of being pushed out of his own diocese. How he did it, we'll never know. But by immense fairness, and but as he said in his opening address in Baltimore, that he had to be prepared to curb the clergy, he even had tiresome bishops. But the strange thing was, with enormous calm and, and never getting angry, he managed to control the whole development. So really he is, in many ways, you'd say, he really is the founder of the American church. And it could well be, we can't say it in public, he may in fact have been as a more remarkable man than George Washington or Madison or Jefferson. But as a bishop, you don't compare him to those. But he was astonishing. Then he had to think about this amazing division because he couldn't go on governing the half America by himself. Well, he picked the most marvelous bishops. And, of course, as you know, he cut off Boston and he cut off New York from his diocese, and then he cut off Bardstown, and eventually the, he had four suffragans, and he put the most wonderful bishops in. There was a time when all the orders tried to get in and started squabbling why we can't have a Franciscan diocese. And so you had every order in, under the sun all trying to come in, and the archbishop simply had to keep calm, and he did, in fact produce what we now have today with Baltimore, the senior see. Then he had to bring it to the seminary and then Georgetown. And Georgetown, as I said to you, which was his first dream and which he started before he was a bishop, that was one half of St. Omer's and Stonyhurst was the other half. I was a boy at Stonyhurst and therefore all my life we all knew that we and you had both come from the same great school founded by Father Robert Parsons. And so at the end, now today, Georgetown Prep as it was, Georgetown was only later the university, Carroll founded a prep and he founded a seminary so that at last you could have real American priests trained in America, not have to rely on priests who may have been not too happy in Europe. 
terrible today. Whenever you start a new thing, all those strange birds who don't get on with their own bishop all tend to flow in. So therefore, all that was his achievement. In 1811, he was made archbishop and the first archbishop in America, and he reigned for 25 years. And I'll read out what Father Gilday says, who was his biographer, a very great historian and competent. He makes it quite clear what an amazing job John Carroll did. Because he, he says this, When the archbishop resigned to the hands of his maker his life and the office he had held for a quarter of a century, the church which 50 years before was so utterly unworthy of consideration to mere human eyes had become a fully organized body, instinct with life and hope, throbbing with all the freedom of a new country. He had an archbishopric and four suffragan sees, another diocese beyond the Mississippi, with no endowments from princes or nobles, was steadily advancing. Churches, institutions of learning and charity, all arising from the spontaneous offerings of those who in most cases were manfully struggling to secure a livelihood in a modest competence. The Diocese of Baltimore had a theological seminary, an novitiate, a scholasticate, colleges, theological seminaries, schools, a community devoted to education and works of mercy. The press was opened to diffuse Catholic truth and to refute false and perverted representations. In Pennsylvania, there were priests and churches through the mountain districts to Pittsburgh, and all was ripe for needed institutions. In New York, Catholics were increasing west of Albany, and it had been shown that a college and an academy for girls would find ready support in the Episcopal city, where a cathedral had been commenced before the arrival of a long-expected bishop. One could go on forever. The whole history of the American church in 50 years obviously was not done by Carroll alone, but by the very earnest priests and lay people who came to the new world to give their lives and work. Nevertheless, it was Carroll's inspiration that made it possible, and it was his wisdom which enabled him to see in the future how important it was to have one church and to be fully American, to capitulize and develop the spirit that the War of Independence had brought. Now, I do believe that's true, and therefore, when history is really fairly told, you'd have to say very few people in the Western Church have done as much. The Society of Jesus was restored, as you know, just before he died. It had a partial restoration first in 1803, when um, Father Molyneux became president of Georgetown, and then John Carroll seriously thought of throwing up his post and coming back to the society. So did Bishop Neal. Those were two ex-Jesuits. But Carroll, in his letters, was quite clear that he felt that God wanted him to go on ruling the diocese. He had many rows with his former colleagues, though he kept very friendly with them. And then in 1815, he seriously thought, as he was old, of abdicating and ending his life as a Jesuit. And I think he would have done that, but he died suddenly before he could make the choice. So he died as Archbishop. So we might possibly end our talk there with the idea of the cathedral at Baltimore. You see, you and I don't appreciate what the Reformation did. If you go to Belgium or Germany or France or Italy, you'll see in, in the cathedral buildings 
unbroken history of architecture. You'll see a cathedral, you see it, for example, extremely well in France, where you can have a, a cathedral that was started by the Normans, and it goes right down to the Reformation and on. So you can see 16th century stained glass, 17th century stained glass, 18th century. You can see um, the change of statues and all that. In England, Maryland, that never happened. Our cathedrals in England stopped dead at the Reformation. We never saw glass, stained glass or statues or anything until much, much later. The same in Maryland. So in the English-speaking world, the Protestant Reformation meant the end of a development of culture. We just had to keep to what we had at that point. That's why Baltimore Cathedral is so thrilling, because it has nothing of the 16th, 17th, or 18th century in it. But it was built at the independence time and represents, the, I say, that little chapel at Lulworth, which was the only chapel in England to the Blessed Sacrament that there was. John Carroll put it into a cathedral. He got a French architect to design the cathedral, he laid down the laws as to what he wanted, and he wrote round alone and collected the money to build it. The most extraordinary thing, he wrote to Napoleon, when Napoleon was the first consul in France. And he said to Napoleon, now that you've got us free of the English, kindly give us some money so we can build cathedrals worthy of French cathedrals. I don't know whether Napoleon answered the letter, I can't find out. But John Carroll raised all that money, and it is to the tribute of the English Catholics that within about five or six years of Independence Day, much of the money that was given for Georgetown College was given by the Wells and Lord Arundel of Warder and all Carroll's English friends. That's why he went to be consecrated at Lulworth. So there the Cathedral of Baltimore is beautiful. He never saw it finished. He died about ten years, I think, perhaps a little less, before it was completed. So he was buried in the old churchyard at Baltimore, and then they moved his body when the cathedral was done. And if you go and get the key and go down into the crypt, you can see his coffin there. Bishop Neal, of course, was buried with the visitation nuns in Georgetown, and then all the bishops of Baltimore are buried next, but he's first. Let us end the whole of this strange retreat at this point. I was told not long ago of a story which may be true or false, that in the not-too-distant past, the bishop or the cardinal, whoever it was, was meeting with the priests of this district to discuss the question of vocations. And he asked, let us say, the priests from Silver Springs, Bethesda, Bowie, and the others, how many young men they had training for the priesthood. And when he came to the pastor from Upper Marlborough and asked him the same question, uh, the priest paused for a moment and then said, we once had a boy called John Carroll. And now we have the plenary indulgence, which I'll give in Latin, but you must pray for the Pope's intentions, which are not private, they're his public intentions, uh, peace in the world and the reunion of Christendom. Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis, Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti, descend at supervos, et mani et semper. Amen. I talk to you now from Dulles Airport. In an hour or two, my flight will take me back to England and to the Isles of Scilly. I didn't want to really to add to the tapes, but I liked them, I heard them. But I was asked one question 
which I think I I ought to answer here. Somebody asked me, John Carroll founded Georgetown, but did he really anticipate the Georgetown that we know today? No, he didn't. The truth is that John Carroll had one vision at the moment when the new American Republic was founded, that the young men, whether laymen or priests, should be educated in the American way. All his life, he simply believed, you know, that America was America. Many people accused him of being a jingoist or a super patriot, but that wasn't true. He had many, many friends in England, many friends in Belgium, in France, so therefore he had no... He was never anti-European and never had any thought of, you know, doing something different. But he did know that for young people, uh, those who want to be priests and those who want to be laymen, they must be educated in America. And when he started Georgetown, he wasn't yet a bishop. And he had to persuade many people, and some of them from England, just after the Independence War, he just wanted the funds. And what he wanted was to produce, uh, you know, a real integrated system of education. So he never thought of Georgetown University as it is today. He thought about what you and I would call a high school, but in John Carroll's day, a high, sc high school didn't exist. He never heard of grades. Indeed, he copied the College of St. Omer's where he himself was educated and where he taught. And therefore, Father Robert Parsons, who came into one of my first tapes, Edmund Campson's colleague who suffered tremendous hardships for, in a year in England, Robert Parsons still remains the inspiration for John Carroll and for myself. Robert Parsons founded a school on the old Jesuit syllabus of the Ratio Studiorum in 1593. John Carroll was a boy at and then he was a master, and when he came to Georgetown, he thought of that. Now, today we have grades, and we all move up, and we all do that. John Carroll was a traditionalist, and therefore he took boys at Georgetown much younger than any high school would take it today. And the class names were marvellous. First of all, a boy at 11 or 12 would enter the class of figures, and then he moved up to syntax, and he moved up to grammar, and then he moved up to poetry and rhetoric. And then if he survived all that, he would have done one year of philosophy. John Carroll went through that at Sonoma's, and I went through that at Stenhouse. And all I can say is that we did produce throughout the world a very integrated community. Whether you were clever or not, you learned grammar, you learned syntax, you learned rhetoric, you learned poetry, you learned all the different grades, rudiments, and eventually, you came out, whether you were clever or not, a man who knew Latin, who knew the classics, and who had all the social graces which the Nomus had. So my last speech to you is to praise the old Jesuit education, where drama and music and the band and the dancing and the fencing was all part of being educated. At the end, you left school an integrated and balanced man. That's what John Carroll had in mind. And when he found Georgetown, he wrote to, to England and many countries saying, will you send me masters? But he had no idea of a university. He would have loved it, but 
the Catholics of those times were so poor. I would have said John Carroll, for all his other tremendous achievements, was the founder not of Georgetown, but Georgetown Prep. In the middle of the last century, when the university began to blossom, Georgetown Prep was moved to the Rockville Pike. But if you ask me now in America, where will you find the spirit of John Carroll? I'd say at, the, at Georgetown Prep. And therefore, t today, when you say, uh, was John Carroll thinking of Georgetown University or the founder? No, he wasn't. He would have loved it, but he, he was so poor, and America was so poor. America was just a new nation, and it took a genius to be willing to start educating at that point. So he raised money in Europe and England, and he got any master he could. All he wanted really was that American boys could... Catholic boys could be educated without sweating over to Europe and, and he wanted American priests who were American. Now, in the old days, they thought him very narrow, but now when we look back, we just say, well, John Carroll was a winner. And Georgetown, the university and all that, owes its inspiration to a man who had no money and no, vacation, no vacations, but simply had a vision. <laughs>